Welcome to the first episode of season seven of the podcast. Today is a very special episode because I'm going to be reading to you from my new book called Raise It, The Reluctant Fundraiser's Guide to Raising Money Without Selling Your Soul. Now, chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you or someone you know is a reluctant fundraiser. You know, someone who has to fundraise because they need to for their organization, but it's not their career. It's not their job. It's usually a task on top of all the other things that needs to get done. And fundraising for these folks usually feels icky or uncomfortable, or as the title suggests, like they're selling their soul. Well, your work is way too important to be reluctant around fundraising. You need money to do your work. And that's why I wrote this book. So buckle up. I can't wait to read these chapters to you. And as a special thank you for being a listener to the podcast, I'm giving you a little discount uh, when you purchase your copy of the book. So if you visit www.raiseitbook.com and use the code POD, P-O-D, you will get a special 10% discount. Now, The books are currently available for pre-sale. They come out late October, but when you buy in advance, you also get tons of other bonuses to help you uh, really implement what you learn in the book. So with that, I will go in to this reading. Uh, As you know, my name is Cindy Wagman, and I am your host of the Small Nonprofit Podcast, where we deliver practical, down-to-earth advice on how to support your small nonprofit. You are going to change the world and we can help. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and you're listening to the Small Nonprofit Podcast, where we share practical and down-to-earth advice on how to run your small nonprofit. You are going to change the world and we are here to help. Welcome. Chances are you picked up this book because you want to change the world, create ripples of impact, and still be well-funded while pursuing your purpose. Whether you're an executive director or board member, nonprofit staff, or volunteer, chances are that you've tried it all. All the fundraising strategies, the new ideas or hot trends, the coaching programs, the consultants, the webinars, etc. If you were lucky enough to hire a fundraising staff member, chances are also that your organization has hit with this high turnover plague that seems to be status quo in our sector. Whatever you've tried, it all leaves you feeling the same. Not enough money not the results you were hoping for. Too many ideas, not enough action. Everyone has the idea that might just be the rocket ship to launch your mission and raise funds, yet there's no one willing to go with you on your fundraising mission. Why? You guessed it. You've probably lived it too, which is why you're here with a copy of my book in your hands. Fundraising feels hard almost daunting. I hear it all the time. How dare I ask someone to donate towards my cause or mission? But here's the kicker. 
How dare you not ask someone to donate to, to your mission? A mission that could change lives. When I first started The Good Partnership, I did a lot of research on what fundraising consulting entails, how consultants work, how they serve clients. This typically meant paying for coaching, developing a fundraising strategy or assessing a team structure. All of these are parts of traditional consulting. And everyone I spoke with had a similar perspective. It's all sunny and bright on this side of the consulting relationship. Less work, more pay, flexibility, control, all the good things. But no one prepared me for the horrible feeling I had when I sat across the table from my first coaching client week after week sharing amazing advice and having her report back that she had taken no action. This continued for about three to four weeks, and we would meet in person at a cool, hip, co-working space where my team and I worked, and I would eagerly wait, excited to hear about her progress or any of the other updates. And each time we'd meet, the answer was always the same. Nothing. No progress. No action. Instead, lots of excuses. Too busy. Something urgent came up. There wasn't enough time. Our donors don't want to be bothered. To say that I was shocked would be an understatement. However, this was far more common than I realized, and it made me feel icky for many reasons. One, she was paying me a lot of money for my time, yet not implementing the strategies and recommendations I'd give her. Two, I felt so uncomfortable taking the organization's money, knowing full well that it wasn't actually going to move things forward for them. I started losing sleep. All I wanted was for these organizations to be seen, to be experienced, to raise the funds their missions so rightly deserve. They were doing incredible life-changing work, and more people needed what they had to offer. I didn't want to be like the other consultants, taking money for advice, knowing that for small organizations, the advice would rarely lead to action. So I mustered up all my courage. I sat down with that coaching client and I politely fired her. Now you may be wondering, who fires a client? If they're happy, who cares? It's their money. But I care. I didn't go into consulting to be able to work without accountability, but that's what was happening. I started consulting to help small nonprofits. I love small nonprofits. This is the legacy I want to create in the world, not by making money knowing that none of the work would actually get done. So I took a step back and thought, how can I make a real difference? How can I truly help small nonprofits in a way that will actually change their fundraising and grow their impact? And that's when it hit me. Our consulting model doesn't work the same way for smaller and medium-sized organizations. And the deeper underlying problem, so much of fundraising education is teaching people who want to fundraise the tactics to do so. Professional fundraisers who want to fine-tune their craft. But who was teaching the non-fundraisers who were shouldered with the responsibility of fundraising when they would rather be doing anything else? Imagine teaching an advanced law class to someone who doesn't want to be a lawyer. It just doesn't work. 
Instead, those non-fundraisers just ended up overwhelmed and trying to copy what all the quote-unquote thought leaders in our sector preach. Instead of starting with the basics, they skip a few steps and end up overwhelmed and stuck. This is not the one client who I fired. I have seen this over and over and over again. I can't count all the times I've received a call from an organization who would share with me their fancy fundraising plan from three years ago and then tell me they didn't take action on the plan. I noticed a trend. Everyone was constantly caught up in keeping up with what everyone else in the industry was doing. They hosted a gala and raised over $50,000. Maybe we should do that. Or they hosted a pop-up event and raised $150,000. We need that. Perhaps we should drive all of our employees to fundraise, grassroots efforts, organically. Or we just need to get in front of Drake. And yes, I have heard those exact words. That sounds great. Dreamy even. But the reality is this. None of it will work if you fundamentally do not want to fundraise. It's forced action. And forcing yourself to do something that feels disconnected, unaligned at a visceral level, will never yield you the results you're looking for. Best practices don't matter. Not if you haven't done the foundational work. Not if you have no interest in this. I always say, I'm never going to reach for the salad when it's sitting beside a pint of Ben and Jerry's. If you're uncomfortable with fundraising, there will always be something else you're going to reach for. So that what, So then what does work? Are you ready to hear it? I mean, we have a whole book together to journey through, but I'll get right to it. Through my research, decades of experience working with numerous nonprofit organizations and their fundraising committees, boards, staff, etc., I noticed a common theme. Say hello to the reluctant fundraiser. Yes, I said it. Why the reluctance, especially if it's for a good cause? I've asked myself that question far too many times to recall. Yet reluctance and hesitation is what I am met with whenever I connect with anyone and their fundraising goals. They can see it clearly, how their nonprofit can pave the way for social justice and change, yet there is this stumbling block between all the fancy, idealistic ideas and the nitty-gritty implementation. Every time I introduce myself as a fundraiser, I am met with the exact same response. Wow, that must be a really hard job. I could never do that. Or it takes a certain kind of person to work in the nonprofit sector. Or the worst, I have no money, sorry. As if I walk around asking random people for money all the time. (laughs) What if, just what if we paused for a moment and thought about what's the underlying factor behind the hesitation to fundraise? What if we identify why you feel icky, the stories that are running rampant in your mind as to why you cannot be successful with fundraising? Ultimately, our organizations are only as successful as the resources we can bring to them. And yes, this includes philanthropy. Our missions, our desire to have ripples of impact throughout the world, to do good and pave change in society requires us to step up and lead, step up and raise money. 
I realize that this is often where the hesitation starts to seep in, that lump in your throat, or perhaps you have sweaty palms, or perhaps you feel like you're going against the whole principle of being charitable or for a good cause, or maybe it feels like you're selling your soul, so to speak. Even just thinking about fundraising ignites a series of physical and emotional reactions for people. Whatever the case may be, fundraising doesn't have to feel this way. I'll say it again. Fundraising doesn't have to take place in this traditional discourse. It can and should excite you. It should fuel into your purpose and bring tons of funds back to the organization so that you can create the impact you desire. And in a nutshell, this is the purpose of this book. Think of fundraising as creating a movement in support of the cause, mobilizing people, foundations, and companies who care. The donors are perpetually rigged in your favor when they see A, they see you believe in your cause and its mission and the impact it can create, and B, when they the same excitement ripples onto them, making them lifelong raving fans who will always come through with funds no matter what. I want you to start thinking of how you can cultivate, build, and rally community support, which then affects the change you're wanting to create and what the organization you are working with needs. I want you to dream of all the possibilities and then act on them. Give no room to the limitations that will crop up. Believe me, I've heard them all. Scarcity mindset doesn't only pertain to money. It pertains to how we go about everything, what we think we can or cannot do. We are so hardwired to look at what we cannot do instead of what is possible. How can we move the needle forward even one degree? And we then project these same limitations onto our potential donors. Instead, look at the big picture and recommit to the impact you desire to create. Reluctant fundraisers are so quick to pass the buck. Recruit that one board member who has experienced fundraising or the board member who has corporate connections and just hope they do it all. When I ask organizations what they would do if I wrote them a check for $100,000, the number one answer is always to hire a fundraiser. Not because they want to grow their fundraising capacity, which they do, but mostly because they want someone else to shoulder that responsibility so they don't have to. Around the board table, it might look like lots of fundraising ideas with little follow-through, or worrying about branding and communications as a precursor to fundraising. Guess what? It's not. Invest in a good pitch deck because that will solve all the fundraising problems. Can you sense my sarcasm? Offloading the problem altogether results in disengagement from the cause and mission. Anyone who is being pitched to can sense the disconnection in energy, passion, and presence, which then leads to a vicious cycle of no funds being raised because we aren't addressing the elephant in the room. Why does it feel uncomfortable to fundraise? Other times, as I shared in my earlier example, someone pays me a lot of money to coach them, except they're still disconnected from doing the actual fundraising work. And that's just it. They fundamentally don't want to fundraise. I hear the excuses. I'm too busy. We need this in place first. I need more help and support. 
bottom line, these people are uncomfortable with the art of fundraising at its core and hence feel comfortable forever pitching ideas without really executing them. Whatever the reason, I am here to help you navigate this, address the root causes, and get back to your mission with renewed passion. I want to empower you with the tools, strategies, and most of all with the mindset that there are always people who desire to invest in your organization for exactly what it is you have to offer. People who want to support your mission with their dollars. Throughout this book, we're going to examine and deep dive into what prevents you from showing up and doing the work. We will rewire certain thought patterns and behaviors and break down limiting beliefs. We will unlock and help you master your mindset so that you can stop letting self-sabotage run the show. We will address your language, your self-talk, which then translates to self-fulfilling prophecies, positive or negative. We will quit wasting money on trying to offload and numb out your problems and actually do the inner work that is needed so you can become a master at fundraising. In fact, you will learn how to make fundraising your art because your mission requires it. It requires you to be authentic, raw, and 100% you, which means saying bye-bye to traditional scripts and tactics. Here, we master the mindset heart set, and bring back the confidence and passion along with some strategy. People want to give to your cause. They want to see you succeed and change the world. Your mission is too important to let it sit there and collect more dust because before you can ever raise the funds it needs to make a difference. Well, let's change that with this book and help you raise it. Chapter 7, Stop Tripping Over Your Triggers Identifying our archetypes and alter egos is all fun and games until we run into what I like to call chain reactions, and many others like to call triggers. Given that our brain prefers to take the easier way out and rewiring our neural pathways to change our behaviors and developing new patterns can take up to 70 days, consider this chapter your mini cheat sheet. We now know that we develop fundraising beliefs and feelings over time, which secretly creates shortcuts in our brains to then control our fundraising behavior. We need to understand how these beliefs show up for us and how they affect our fundraising results. I want you to gain awareness of how these beliefs do or do not align with where you want to grow as an organization and as a fundraiser. Do they serve the legacy you want to create? Here's what happens in our brains as we go through the world. There are circumstances, which leads to beliefs, which leads to feelings, which leads to actions, which results in results. If we want to change our results, we have to change the sequence that leads to them. There are circumstances or triggers that happen, which is basically us engaging with the world around us. Triggers that cause the chain reaction can be things like interactions or events and conversations. So I want you to take a minute to identify your fundraising triggers, good and bad. These are the circumstances that come up in your day-to-day activities where these beliefs and emotions surface. For example, 
Maybe a trigger is when fundraising comes up on the agenda at a board meeting, or you're at an event, or you're sitting at your computer trying to write a note to a donor. Perhaps you feel triggered reading this book, or it's listening to a podcast on fundraising, or being around family and friends who don't quite understand what you do. This is where I want you to slow down and pay attention. When that trigger occurs, what is the first thought that pops into your mind? What are the emotions that arise for you? This is the part that we're not usually aware of. So I want you to pause and think. Even better, try and catch yourself in the moment. Sometimes these beliefs or thoughts can be totally irrational. In fact, they mostly are irrational, but they will show up as truth for you. These beliefs are developed through our survival instincts. In that moment, it feels like our whole world could collapse. And in retrospect, it might be totally silly. It could be that you believe you have nothing in common with your donors, or that you're going to look silly or unqualified, or feel embarrassed because you don't have the answers to the questions that are being asked of you. Sometimes we can best identify these when we give advice to others. Very often, we're really good at giving advice, but terrible at following our own advice. Just think, do I practice what I preach? If not, then you need to change this trigger sequence. So here's an example of a sequence I see come up again and again with folks. I always recommend, over and over and over in fact, that individuals book meetings with their donors and supporters, and that's individuals, corporations, foundations, etc., just to get to know them and why they chose to support your organization. There's no ask in these meetings. It's just a chance to listen and learn. And it doesn't matter how many times I repeat this advice, most reluctant fundraisers never get started. They never send that email or pick up that phone. So here's what that sequence might look like. Circumstance. You learn that without a doubt, one of the most effective actions you can take with fundraising, especially mission-centered fundraising, is to get to know your supporters. Belief. Your brain is slamming on the brakes. I believe that I'm not experienced enough, or I don't know the right way to manage these meetings. I believe that I can't be authentic, and that I have to present myself in a way that is not comfortable or not me. Feelings. I feel nervous and anxious and like an imposter. I'm questioning my leadership and if I'm even the right person to be fundraising. Actions. I just don't do the work. I focus on something else that's more comfortable. And results. I don't get to know my donors and therefore I can't ask them to give in a meaningful way. So our fundraising isn't as effective and we're not raising as much money as we could be. Think about this for a moment and write down all the beliefs that come up or tie the triggers back to the beliefs you've already identified through the journal prompts in prior chapters. Feelings are emotions that accompany your beliefs. For example, sad, scared, happy, nervous, angry, guilty, shame. What are the emotions that come up for you when you read this? Write them down. And this is where the magic takes place. When those brain shortcuts really kick into high gear with action, 
When we get to the action stage of the sequence or chain, we are typically unaware that we're actually taking any action or sometimes inaction. For example, we might avoid what we most need to do by focusing on something else that on on our to-do list that feels more comfortable or easier. We might need to really connect with our donors and make donor calls, but instead we're planning our social media strategy or writing thank you letters or planning a gala when in fact it's the direct phone or face-to-face communication with our donors that will spread the word of our mission and help us raise funds for it. Let's face it, there's always something else you could be doing with your time. And usually those things can feel pretty important maybe easier and certainly more comfortable. This is the inertia I mentioned earlier. Another example is that you might go into a conversation talking too much instead of listening. Instead of allowing your potential supporter or donor to share more about themselves and learning to actively listen so you can understand their why and connection to your mission, you miss that opportunity by coming on too strong in the conversation, or dominating all the talk time. Or perhaps you focus on preparing and planning for every little scenario because you're not ready. What action or inaction shows up for you? And where? I want you to write that down. Of course, when we do things, it affects our results and our mission's bottom line. Here's another common example of that trigger sequence. Circumstance. I have the opportunity to talk to someone about our work work and our organization. Belief. People don't naturally want to support our work, so I have to pitch them hard. That means we need a stellar elevator pitch and a pitch deck, and we don't have those things. Feeling. Our organization is less impressive, or this person won't want to support us because we're missing key pieces of the fundraising pie. And as a side note, you absolutely don't need an elevator pitch or pitch deck, but there's more to come on that soon. Actions. I put off scheduling the meeting until I feel like we're ready, which is basically never. And results, we lost that opportunity for support. You do not need a polished elevator pitch. And I would argue that in most circumstances, a pitch deck will do you more harm than good if you don't connect with the prospective donor first. Do some good listening and find the areas of alignment with your mission before you think about what that right pitch would be. And instead of an elevator pitch, try telling a personal story that gets you emotional, that can spark that emotion in someone else. As a result, we fail to achieve the outcome or results we desire, and it reinforces our existing beliefs that we're bad at fundraising, or that nobody wants to support our mission. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, which I will dive in deeper in the next chapter. We add meaning to that sequence instead of understanding that it's just a shortcut in our brain that we need to rewire. The thing with triggers and chain reactions is that the moment we gain awareness of them and understand why it occurs, we can start to take away the power it holds over us. While it takes practice, also known as building habits, to change the autopilot of these sequences, we can start to identify where we need to do the work and what an alternative might look like. 
We no longer stop dead in our tracks or feel tongue-tied when we head into a donor meeting or are pitching our organization for a sponsorship or grant. I always say that the strategy will help you build and grow your fundraising prowess, thereby growing your mission, but it's learning to master and understand your emotions, rewire your beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that will lead to sustainable, purposeful, long-term impact and results. All right, folks, that's it for the chapter. I hope you got a lot out of that, but if it wet your palate and you want to learn more, visit www.raiseitbook.com. That's raiseitbook.com and use the discount code SMALL to get 10% off your order. I wish you all the success in fundraising. I'll see you next week. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.